But today we want to introduce one of the rhythms of what it would look like to step into this one thing that is necessary. We talked about being with Jesus, and we talked about doing what Jesus did. And today we're going to introduce a practice that does both of those things. Guys, uh, Michael and Hunter both very much stole my sermon today. So um, let me just repeat what has already been said. Um, Let me kind of set the stage just by talking about some of the benefits, the gifts of gratitude. There are actually amazing benefits that come with the practice of thankfulness, of thanksgiving, of gratitude. Um, Hunter mentioned some research. There was a a researcher, Martin Seligman. He's done a lot of big studies, but he's a a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. And in one of his studies, he kind of took hundreds of people and he put them in different groups. He says, one group is just going to practice giving thanks. They're going to write a personal letter of gratitude to someone that they don't think has been thanked fully. Another group of people, um, they're going to <clears throat> practice a, a different intervention, and it's like meditation, it's like talk therapy, it's on and on and on, different interventions, hundreds of people, and then there's a control group who's not doing anything. And here's what Seligman found. He says, when their week's assignment was to write and personally deliver a letter of gratitude to someone who had never been thanked, it says that the participants immediately exhibited a huge increase in happiness scores. This impact was greater than that of any other intervention with benefits lasting for a month. 30 days later, people are still still feeling happy from writing one letter, one letter of gratitude. There was a couple of other psychologists at the University of California and UC Davis. They say, again, hundreds of people in this big study, one group is going to just practice thankfulness. One group is going to do thankfulness and, and kind of the negative things. And then another group is just going to reflect on big things, just things that have affected them. How do, how do they play out? What they found is that those with daily irritations, they performed worse. The people just reflecting on what's happened, they performed worse. But after 10 weeks, those who wrote about gratitude, with, they were more optimistic. They felt better about their lives. But they found that surprisingly, these people also tended to exercise more. They went to the doctor less. So it wasn't just that they felt happier, it's that they were also healthier. Some of the flourishing that we're craving just started happening for these people. And so Harvard Health Publishing, this is their statement. Gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, build strong relationships. There's a study done on couples. They found that couples who took the time to just say thank you and to express gratitude to one another, they had better relationship skills with one another. They felt more comfortable not only saying good things, but also expressing their concerns and their real hearts. Do you see all the benefits of this? It's, it's amazing. There's all of these gifts of gratitude that start happening, these practical benefits. But it's not just these feelings that start happening. One gratitude researcher, he says, gratitude has a power. What's the power? He says it's to heal and to energize and to change lives. If you were to get on Amazon and just kind of review titles of books about gratitude, here's a little sampling. Seven exercises that will change your life for the better. The gratitude effect, the gratitude diaries, how a year looking on the bright side can transform your life. 365 thank yous. 
the subtitle, The Year a Simple Act of Daily Gratitude Changed My Life. Flip the gratitude switch. A simple formula to change the trajectory of your life. You see what they're saying? The gratitude has a power because grateful people don't just feel differently. They live differently. They turn into more generous, more forgiving, more patient, kinder. They sleep better. They stop overeating. They exercise more. It eases depression. It gives you happiness that lasts. There's amazing benefits that are associated with research. And you may be thinking, well, how does this set the stage for, for normally I start with attention. How is this attention? Because I think the tension is that most of us know this is the case. We feel good about gratitude. We know that thankfulness has a power. And yet, we don't do it. At least not very frequently. Why don't we? Thankfulness has this amazing, life-changing power to make us feel happier and to live more healthy, healthier. I think it's because there are a couple of costs of gratitude. The first one, it comes at a cost of convenience. There's nothing that like satisfies us. Um, let me state the principle, then I'm going to apply it in a few ways. This was from an op-ed in the New York Times. The author says, isn't dissatisfaction, isn't dissatisfaction with the way things are the impetus to make things better? Does that make sense? When you notice something <laughs> is bad, it helps it become better. And Sometimes this can look like trivial things. I was listening to a comedian. He was talking about personal satisfaction and convenience. Is it bad that I quote so many comedians? Just let me know later. Um, he says, my parents survived World War II, the Great Depression, the polio epidemic, military draft, pulp in their orange juice, unregulated, unlimited pulp in orange juice. They never breathed a word about it. And then he says, then we came along, took one sip, and what was that? Is that orange in my orange juice? And he says, okay, okay, we've taken out the pulp. Are you happy now? And I said, well, can we have some? Can we have some pulp? He says, they didn't complain, so nothing changed. For hundreds of years, they just didn't complain. They just kind of grew up, and they were resilient. They were the greatest generation. He says, not, not so anymore. Not so anymore. Can we have some pulp? Gratitude doesn't get me what I want. Grumbling does. Gratitude doesn't get me what I want. Complaining does. And as every child learns, gratitude doesn't get you what you want always. They are magic words, Hunter. But very often, whining gets you what you want. Crying, throwing fits, that gets you what you want. There's a convenience to ingratitude. That's pretty trivial. There's also this reality of grief and injustice. There's this it's not just convenience, it's lament. Isn't dissatisfaction with the way things are the impetus to make things better? How long, O oh Lord? You open up your news app on your smartphone, and did you see that there was a racially motivated mass shooting yesterday in Buffalo, New York? You see that there's war in Ukraine. They're putting people on for war crimes, just murdering people in the streets, old people pushing carts, walking from the grocery store. It's just every day, you just open it up and you scroll and you think, 
how could I be thankful at the beginning of my day like this, knowing, fully, globally aware of all that's happening? Giving thanks is an essential practice. But how do we do it alongside lament? Michael quoted Stephen Colbert. Here's a Colbert quote. He says, cynicism masquerades. Okay, it's still on. Cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the furthest thing from it. While there is room and there are seasons of lament, there are seasons of grief, if you stay there, it turns you into people who are perpetually discontent, short-tempered, rarely at peace, rarely at rest, and it's not good for our souls, and it actually doesn't provoke the impetus to make things better that we long for. Most of us, it's not lament that gets in the way of our daily gratitude. It's distraction. Convenience, that may be part of it. Satisfaction, lament and injustice, that may be part of it. But I think for most of us, it's just that our lives are so full that we have very little time to actually slow down and say thank you. This morning I felt it. We were having pancakes at the breakfast table with our three kids. And because of what I'm talking about and because of some of the perpetual discontent that's going on in my home, we were trying to do some thankfulness exercises. It was like, can you say a thing you're thankful for about each person at the table? It was like a simple little exercise. But I was like, I gotta go, I need to get there. I'm, my mind's in another place. It was even, I'm preaching on giving thanks this morning and I could still barely feel present in the moment to, to slow down and listen to my kids and then to find the words myself. That's, I think, where most of us are. Yes, seasons of the other, but the cycles of busyness are the real perpetual reality that I think distract us from giving things. The reality is that we're like Martha. We're distracted and troubled about many things, and we forget that the one thing that is necessary. And yet, what we see, the one thing that is necessary is a life of discipleship to Jesus, to be with Jesus, to do what Jesus did. And what Jesus is and what he embodies is gratitude. There's one theologian. He says, becoming a more grateful person is the first and the most important step that there is in overcoming the practical atheism that besets our everyday lives. In other words, the parts where we just kind of blank out as if God isn't actually saturating the world with his goodness. When we forget James 1.17, that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, we forget that. And he says gratitude is the most important step in recapturing the presence of God, the goodness of God. He says, to the extent that we take life for granted, we will never see the giver behind the gift. But once we stop taking life for granted, we will soon enough to begin to feel it as granted to us. When you stop taking it for granted, it will feel like it's granted to us by God. Today, what we're going to do is walk through a biblical theology of giving thanks. What that means is we're going to kind of start at the beginning how Scripture shapes this picture of thankfulness, of thanksgiving. And then in a biblical theology, it always culminates and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus takes it and hands it to the church and entrusts it to us in some way. That's, we're going to do a big overview, and then we're going to look at a little case study from the letter of Colossians. 
okay? So the full, like, sweeping picture, and then we'll slow down just a little bit in Colossians, and then we'll talk about how to do it practically. That's, that's where we're going today. A biblical theology of giving thanks. So how does Scripture talk about thankfulness or thanksgiving? It's actually interesting. It doesn't start with thankfulness. It starts with ingratitude. It starts in the wilderness. One of the first places that this concept of gratitude shows up is when Israel is in the wilderness. They've been rescued from the Red Sea, from Egypt and slavery and bondage. And now the Lord is giving them manna from heaven and he's giving them water to drink and he's giving them quail to eat and they just keep complaining. They are grumbling and complaining. They are whining and throwing fits. And their ingratitude isn't just this superficial problem. Ingratitude is a fundamental problem for them. Because it's a denial of God and his goodness, and it's this inflation of self. Ingratitude, the lack of thankfulness, it shows up as a very serious sin in Scripture. Because of how it warps our picture of ourselves and how it warps our picture of God. That's really where the Scripture story of giving thanks begins. But it seems that God is fully aware of this. And so what God does is he gives his people Israel, starting in the wilderness practices. He gives them practices to exercise thankfulness. The first one that he gives in the book of Leviticus is the peace offering. The peace offering, here are the instructions. Anytime God does something good for you, anytime God, uh, anything, you take an animal from your flock and you go offer it to the Lord and you tell him thank you. Every good thing has a corresponding offering It doesn't cost you an arm and a leg, but it does cost someone an arm and a leg. You're literally killing to just remember how good God is. It's a daily thing, potentially. It's this response. It's remembering the activity of God. But the other half of this are annual rhythms, not just the kind of as-you-go daily rhythms. The annual rhythms of like the harvest festival and the festival of booths that look backward and they say, oh, I remember how God delivered us from Egypt We're going to celebrate and and show our gratitude. Or look back at our harvest at the end of the year. At the end of the year, we look back and we realize all that God has done for us this year. Now, in America, we have budget seasons and, you know, um, fiscal years and year end, and we have tax seasons. And a lot of you are in that world, and you're like, I'm so glad it's May and not April anymore. We got through it. But nobody was then throwing harvest festivals of gratitude to God. That, that's one of the practices that Israel was given by God to grow their sense of gratitude, to recognize the goodness of God. But it doesn't stop there. There's this amazing story in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 that we see. 1 Chronicles 16 is the first time that David welcomes in the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. The Ark has been held captive by the Philistines. He brings it back. And when he brings it back, it's a day of worship and celebration. In 1 Chronicles 16, he welcomes it in, and it it says in this chapter that this is the first time on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord. This is where thanksgiving starts showing up in the people of God, not just in offerings and festivals, but now in music. And so he appoints these, we would call it a praise team or a worship band. He appoints these people from the family of Asaph, and he says every day, there's this one commentary, it calls it a permanent daily ministry of worship. Every day in the temple, we are going to sing thanksgiving to God. 
And so he says, I want you to get the strings, and I want you to get the trumpets, and I want you to get the singers. And every day we're going to sing thankfulness. And then David writes a poem of thankfulness that becomes the anthem of Israel's worship. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is 1 Chronicles 16. It's the first one. He says, I want you to sing this. And so it's this invitation for all of God's people to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. The Psalms pick up on this. A dozen times the Psalms use just that line from David. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then they start riffing on it in other ways, and other poets start writing other songs that talk about giving thanks to God in, in worship and music. I will praise God's name in song, and I will glorify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 95, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise it. You see, it just starts filling the worship of God's people. It's this daily reminder in offerings and it's this annual reminder in festivals, but now it becomes this pervasive reality. Every day in the temple, there's worship. It's thanksgiving. It's, it's really cool to me how actually beginning here and then all the way through, Thanksgiving is tied to music, instruments, and to singing and, and hymns. Th those ideas are really connected in Scripture. But what happens when the temple is destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant is removed? What happens when you don't get to go into Jerusalem and you don't get to march in and say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures? What if you're living over in Babylon? This is actually where the story goes next with the, the figure Daniel. Now, you know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. But do you remember why Daniel was executed to death by eating from a lion? You remember the, the king, he decreed that no one could pray to any other god except him. And Daniel, it says that he went back into his home and he looked toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place where the ark used to be, where the spirit of God used to reside, and it says, this, this is why he went there. Daniel 6, verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. He had this, we call it a rhythm of life here at Oikos. He had a, a rule of, this is really one of the first characters in scripture who has a rule of life, morning, noon, and night, every day, he's, he's going to give thanks. The reason that Daniel would have been executed is because he had a practice of thankfulness that he was not willing to give up. He was going to practice thanksgiving. It was essential. You see, thanksgiving isn't just about life in the good times. It's life even in exile. He's praying, giving thanks to God. Morning, noon, and night, and this is, of course, why he's sentenced to death. Ezra and Nehemiah, we, we'll slow down there. I mean, sorry, we'll go quickly there. But what, what these books show us is when they come back into the land, they have to restore worship. And at the heart of restoring worship is prayers and music of thanksgiving. And then, of course, it's fulfilled in, in the person of Jesus. Now, Jesus, we see him giving thanks frequently. Whenever he feeds the thousands, loaves and fish, breaks the bread and he gives thanks. But more than just giving thanks, we see what a life 
in total alignment with the goodness of God looks like. He, he is the, the life of gratitude perfectly embodied for us. When people encounter Jesus, it says that they go on their way celebrating and rejoicing. They're full of thankfulness. You have people who come to Jesus, they hear the gospel or experience his presence, and they go on celebrating in thankfulness. He's this conduit of gratitude. He embodies it, but then it seeps out of him and onto other people. And then Jesus hands this over to the church, and we see the apostles practicing this in their letters. It says, every time we pray, we give thanks to you. This this is the will of God for you, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Don't be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your petitions to God. Ephesians 5.19, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sing and make music to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how it's, it's once again connected? He, the practices of Israel are now mediated through Jesus and given to the church in new ways. All right, that's the big sweeping biblical theology. Can we slow down and just look at what this might look like for the church to practice in the letter of Colossians? In Colossians, it's a short letter. If you were to just start reading right now, you'd probably finish in about 12 minutes. It's really short. It, and yet, it's filled with language of thankfulness. It starts from the beginning. In the beginning, he introduces the letter, and then he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And he goes on to tell them why he's so thankful for them. But then he calls them to participate in the thankfulness too. Do you see it here in verse 12? He says, I want you to joyfully give thanks to the Father. Why? Because he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's just like the, the festival of Israel, the festival of booze, where you remember your deliverance from slavery in Egypt, except now he's saying every moment, not just every year, every moment we give thanks to God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he continues this. Once again, he brings up the idea of thankfulness. He says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. What would it look like to live in Jesus, to be with Jesus and to do what he did? He says, you're rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Some translations say abounding. It's it, two metaphors. Is it rooted and then it's bearing fruit, and it's just this abundance of harvest. Or is it like a water pump that's just overflowing? One of my friends, Luke Gard, he says, have you ever been around negative people, and it, it feels like they just kind of rub off on you, and then you find yourself being more negative and complaining? He says, it's the opposite here of what's happening. These, he says, people who live in Christ, they're overflowing, they're abounding with gratitude. And that rubs off on us. And we become more grateful people. It has this, just like Jesus, this mediating effect of the gratitude of God. But really, this builds into chapter 3, which Hunter shared at the table. What chapter 3 is doing is giving really specific instructions to the church. They're wide-ranging. 
as we'll see here, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is a high bar, right? It's forgiveness, it's humility. But then he says, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Peace. In chapter one, he says that Christ has won peace through the blood of his cross. The peace offering of the Old Testament is now transformed in the peace offering of Jesus Christ, the blood of his cross. It's this abiding reality. And so he says, and be, be thankful. I like James Dunn in his commentary. He says, you can tell that these things are all intertwined together. Forgiveness, love, kindness, and thankfulness. He says, you can't remove one of those pieces and expect all of it to keep working. If you remove gratitude and thankfulness from a life, it's going to be really challenging to get to a place of humility, of forgiveness, and love. Certainly peace. The peace, the New Testament writings, especially Paul's letters, they seem to say that the, the presence of anxiety and fear, and then the practice of gratitude and thankfulness, it says they're like competing with each other for the same space. But God's desire for us is to live in peace. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, in everything with thanksgiving, give that over to God. All right, one, uh, if we just keep going, this is, he says, be thankful, but then he's going to keep talking about gratitude. And so next verse, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, so kind of put some of these pieces together. In the Old Testament, what we see is this biblical theology of giving thanks. There are daily practices, there are annual practices, and then there's this worship that happens in the temple. But in the Christian age, on the other side of the cross, we see that the peace of Christ isn't an offering that you make, it's actually his offering that we remember. Be thankful, that's the pathway to peace. We see it's, it's not just annual celebrations that look back. He says, I want you to remember and be grateful because he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and he has translated us into the kingdom of light. It's not just when you go to the temple and you see that the worship band is up there playing and you can say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his love endures forever. It's not just then. He says, because now we are spirit-filled people, and so everywhere, in all things, in word and deed, in everything that you do, he says, I want you to give thanks to God. It's like music should be in your ears and on your lips just constantly. Our conversations should be filled with gratitude and songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It's this beautiful picture of maybe ideally what a church can look like when it gives itself to giving thanks. Last one, it's just a brief thing in chapter 4. In chapter 4, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Seven times in just a couple of minute read, Paul's going to tell people to be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Practice Thanksgiving. This is an essential mark of the people of God. 
It's a transformative, powerful practice. So what would it look like for us to step into it? What we've said is that there's one thing that's necessary, a life of discipleship to Jesus. To be with Jesus and to do what Jesus did is really the pathway to life and flourishing, the the life that we want. And I believe that in the practice of giving thanks, the Lord comes near to us. That thankfulness is a means of his grace and his presence. And I believe that when we do what he did, we become more like him. What would that look like for you? Let me give you a couple of kind of frames to see your practice. If you're kind of building or refining your rhythm of life of giving thanks and this life-changing habit, what could it look like? The The first piece is up, in, and out. Up, in, and out. What I mean is your relationship to God, your relationship within his people, and your relationship out with non-believers and with the world. I think each of these areas can be explored for ways of giving thanks to God. Obviously, this morning, we can say, thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands. We can sing all together in this, but can't we also do that at home? The public worship component of up, I think, can easily be mirrored in a personal devotion on a daily basis. What would it look like to give thanks in, within the church family? I think it, it looks like expressions of, of gratitude. And if you, if you just took 30 seconds and you typed out a text message where you just said, I just want to say thank you because I've noticed you doing this, you know what would happen? That person would f- just be filled up with joy and gratitude. You know what would happen to you? you too would be filled up with that same sense of of joy and happiness. This practice has that effect in in our our minds and uh, in our bodies. It's just a little practice of giving thanks. And then out, what could it look like to just be a thankful person when we engage with the world? The second frame is to find your cues. Do you remember the cues that we talked about last week were morning when you wake, meal times, and at night when you go to bed. Morning, mealtimes, and going to bed. These are things we do every single day. And if you could just tag on a habit such as Thanksgiving onto one of those or all three of those, like Daniel, if you could just tag on this habit of giving thanks, it might actually have a ripple effect. Because this habit of Thanksgiving, researchers find, is that it spills over. It's, It's what they call a keystone habit. The keystone, remember, is the center of an archway. It's where everything gets its support and its strength. Other things are built on top of it. So thankful people tend to be happier people. Thankful people tend to be healthier people. They, they tend to have these other things kind of built on. They exercise more. They, they do these other things because of their thankfulness. So finding your cue could be really important here. Here's a couple of examples of what it could look like. In the morning, I think before you check the news feed on all that's wrong in the world, before you go to screens, it's probably a good time to go to God. Before your, your mind goes into the mode of injustice and lament, because it's coming. And how pervasive and how our awareness is now global, it's coming. And so I think combining lament with the practice of giving thanks in the mornings is a really great way to start your day. So giving thanks in prayer to God, perhaps in worship or song, a playlist, 
uh, a prayer that you begin your day with, a reading, and then you just pause and you tell God, thank you for these three things or these seven things. Mealtimes, it could look like, um, a lot of families I know do this. It's just, it's actually bringing in one of the other graces, ask deeper questions. It's just pausing with your family saying, can everybody share a high and a low today? Can everybody take a turn giving thanks for something that happened today? Can everybody take a turn just saying something they're thankful for about the other people at the table? There's a lot of ways to practice this at mealtime that doesn't actually change anything. It actually makes your mealtime more fulfilling. And then bedtime, I think, is another good time to practice a prayer that ends your night uh, on a regular basis. The, the third frame that I want to share, and then, then we'll be done, is this saying yes and no of embracing and resisting. Each of the, the graces has something that we need to say yes to. Yes to contentment. Yes to joy. Yes to a humble awareness of what God is doing in the world. Yes, 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 yes. But part of this is also saying no to entitlement. No to selfishness. No to whining. You see that there's... There's this no that goes along with a yes. And so for me, the practice of giving thanks is a really great pair with the practice of confessing my sins. So in the morning and in the evening, to give thanks to God and to say, I'm sorry for this. I see this in me. I don't, I don't like it, but I am so grateful for your mercies that are new every morning. That, that combo it can be really good. There's a lot of ways to practice both of those sides of resisting entitlement and embracing contentment. All right. There's a, maybe too much. The really important thing isn't that you know more about thankfulness. It's that you begin practicing it in consistent ways. That's where the life change really starts happening. But let, let me share where the power for this, I think, really comes from. And, and we'll be done. This is... This is the Greek word, give thanks. Eucharistao. Do you see the first part of that word, Eucharist? All right, so when Jesus is at the Last Supper, the Passover meal, he, he has the bread, this is Luke 22, and he has the cup. It says, with each one that he took them, with the bread he breaks it, and then what does he do? He, he does Eucharist. He gives thanks. He gives thanks for the cup. He gives thanks for the bread. That's, that's where the language of Eucharist for the Lord's Supper comes from. It comes from Jesus, what he does at the table. But I'm struck by Jesus at the table because I think this is really where the power comes from. It's this relationship of experiencing grace. Did you know that our word gratitude comes from the Latin word for grace? Gratia? Grace. It's a recognition of grace. That's what gratitude, it's, this also comes from the Greek word for grace. It's just recognizing grace. And so at the table, there's this demonstration of grace that happens in a profound way. Paul says it's when we don't deserve it. It's when we are dead in our sins that Christ died for the ungodly. It's at the table, he comes and he says, I want you to take my body and take my blood. I'm giving them for you. It's an act of grace. 
And the experience of grace then opens us up to the practice of gratitude. Because no more can I say, I am owed this. No more can I say, this is what I deserve. Because I've already experienced in Christ, in his body and in his blood, something that I never deserved. That I, could, I was never owed. I couldn't earn. I'm unworthy to receive it. And yet, we just did. We just took the body and the blood. This weekly reminder of the grace of God to the undeserving opens us up to the practice. The power for gratitude comes from experiencing the grace of God. You see it? The power for gratitude, it frees us in the experience of the grace of God. There's a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and our practices of thankfulness. I told Rose, I said, can you write an ending for me? I don't think I have one. Um, I'd, let me just offer this prayer for you, okay? Would you stand up and I'll just pray Philippians 4. This life-changing habit of experiencing the grace and then sharing it. Lord, would you make this so? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for your grace. Help us to be more grateful for your glory and in your name. Amen.